Welcome to Better Together with a Life Worth Living. I'm Rosalind Peck. Our stories teach, inspire, and bind people together. This episode is made possible by the support of generous sponsors. In this podcast, we're going to talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's usually triggered by a terrifying event and can be debilitating. Today, we're going to meet some people who have experienced multiple traumatic events, but have found ways to cope with them and are able to live productive lives. We'll also hear about programs that help people deal with PTSD. My first guest is Michael Akpata, who has worn many hats in his life. He was a Windsor police officer and a Canadian military reservist. He is now a LaSalle town counselor and teaches at St. Clair College. Mike knows PTSD firsthand. Welcome, Mike. Very glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Let's start with your Windsor police experience. How long did you do that for? So I was with Windsor Police for 21 years. Very privileged to have uh, enjoyed the career. I worked in different departments. I worked in drugs and gangs and training branch and fraud. And as most officers or frontline emergency workers do, came to know the city late at night when people were having their worst day of their life and was able to assist them, work through it, and do my best to reassure them that there was still humanity left in human beings. Was there any one event from when you were a police officer that caused you to get PTSD? Well, I'm very careful when I say that uh, I've never been diagnosed. I just understand the reaction to unique events. And I do have one very specifically. It was fireworks night, 2006, which would have made it June 27th, about 12.08 a.m. So maybe on the 28th, a call had come out for an officer being stabbed on Huron Church. And like all other officers, you stop what you're doing because you hear the officer needs assistance that someone had been stabbed and drive out there. And I look at that day and I remember a number of things that sort of start to lead to the disjoint of memory. I remember going down Riverside Drive, probably about 140 or 150 kilometers an hour. And selfishly, it was less than 90 days after Senior Constable John Atkinson had been murdered. And I can't do another funeral. And when I arrived, I got out of the car and started to run towards the other officers. And from a first aid perspective, I saw that the officers were standing, which is not common if you've been stabbed or seriously injured. You should be down on the ground. So right off the bat, uh, internally, my mind started to suggest to myself that this was not as bad as it was. And as I'm running towards the two officers who are walking towards me, I see the soles of a child's feet on the ground. And I say to myself, who's changing a diaper in this gong show? I use some different languages in my head, but my daughter was just born. And I remember looking at the child and there was an officer holding an IV bag. Paramedics had already arrived and I'd never seen anyone's eyes so big. And what I saw on the ground was sort of a dark, wet spot under the child. And I later came to know that the child had been stabbed in excess of 22 times and was slowly dying on the road on Huron Church. So, you know, job now moves from the officers are okay because they're up and walking to this is the priority and stood there and said to paramedics, what can I do? And I'll never forget the, the, the supervisor who said to me, Mike, this is a three hands call. There's three of us here. We need three sets of hands to try to save this young child. You're driving the ambulance. So right off the bat, I'm like, okay, I'm driving the ambulance. That's bad. Ambulances are top heavy. I'm used to driving a Crown Vic and I'm you know used to driving fast. And I remember sitting in the ambulance while they worked on the child, they tapped on the back and we went to the do. We pull up to the do and the doctor who was working that day, I'll never forget her, she looked and she saw and they immediately started working. 
So I'm in the room with the doctor who's working on the child. And I remember her, she'd put four units of blood into this two-year-old. We were getting ready to take the child to uh, receiving in Detroit. Everything was set up, the, the tunnel was blocked. And I remember her putting in the last bit of blood and then this red foamy blood coming from the back of the child. And I knew what it meant. It meant that there was a rupture in the lung and that the air was going into the blood. And after two or three gasps, the child died. And I had to get on the air because everyone was waiting. When I say everyone, the entire police department was tuned in to hear, first of all, how their colleague had done. Second of all, what was going on with this. And multiple officers had blocked the tunnel. We'd shut down the tunnel to get over there. DPD, Detroit police, was ready to meet the ambulance and escort us. And I had to get on the air and say, you can release the tunnel. Everybody knew what that meant, that the child had died. But that, doesn't, that didn't stop it. The call or the investigation now progressed because I had a murder. So myself and the doctor went over injury by injury on the child, documented every stab wound, every injury. And I still had to go back to the station, multiple reports to write, and was done probably 12, 13 hours later, but had still worked a full shift. And like I said, I remember one of the superintendents came to myself and the partner were in the elevator going up to change at the change room and he stopped the elevator. And it's one of these, it's, it's, it's almost a movie type scene. He stops the elevator and he says, are you guys okay? And coppers are hard people. Yeah, we're fine. He goes, no, just how he said it. No, are you okay? Both of us start to cry. Young child. Wow, that's quite an experience. Now you went from that to, was that before you went overseas? Or that was before after? I went overseas. That was 2006. I was deployed with 2nd Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment to Afghanistan in 2007. Okay. What happened to you over there? So I was with the Force Protection Platoon. Everything that uh, moved in Afghanistan moved by road. So we were in armored fighting vehicles and we escorted logistics convoys into all of the Ford operating bases. So the Taliban would plant IEDs in the road. We would drive over them. They'd blow up and, and Canadian soldiers would die, unfortunately. 22 young Canadians were killed on my tour. We had a number of close calls. We were shot at. Things exploded. You're flying around in what I call code red. You're at the most heightened level of awareness and that becomes normal. There was only so many roads in Afghanistan to move through Kandahar to the places that we went. So if there was an explosion yesterday on the road, Canadian forces and Afghan allies filled it in and we drove over the same spot the next day. And so there were, there were some times that it was white knuckling, wondering what was gonna happen, but it was the responsible thing from my perspective to do. I was a reservist, I'd been a reservist for a number of years, and I believed that I had a responsibility when the government called and it was my turn to do my duty. What impact did these events have on you? I describe it like this. If we talk about the war fighting experience, I've got friends who've lost close friends who've been in command decisions and soldiers who make it back unscathed like I did. I'm very, very lucky. It has nothing to do with my skill or my cunning or my ability to soldier. It has to do with the wheel of fate. The wheel spun and my number didn't come up. So one of the things that happens is you wonder, why am I here? And as someone who made it back home, I owe these young faces something and I owe to talk about them and do whatever I can because I've got friends who've gone on multiple tours and will never speak of their experience because the things that they saw 
the things that we all participated in when you're war fighting, it affects you to your core. And much like a videotape, and I describe it as that, these things play over and over and over in your head. So specific days for my tour, I can tell you exactly where I was. I can tell you what the smells were. I can tell you what transpired that day. And as I work through those days, some of them are more difficult than others because they were horrible days for what we did. And there's still that wondering, why am I here? You have a family, Mike. Tell me about your family and how they've been affected by PTSD and your experiences. In my house, I've got veterans, friends that come over, and my children have been exposed to a side of war fighting that is not glorious, that is not glamorous, and sometimes is downright disheartening. They've seen me cry. They've seen friends of mine cry on these days. And my responsibility is to explain to them why I did it to make sure that they understand that when soldiers or coppers that I work with come by and we just go downstairs to have a chat or we sit on the front porch, not all our conversations are good. And that it is a multiple support program that we have where I say, give me a call at three o'clock in the morning if this is a bad day and I'll be up and I'll do it. And when I look at my children and I recognize what I have and what these fallen Canadian soldiers will never experience. It weighs on my mind. But my children level me out because I've promised myself to be the best father, parent, Canadian I can possibly be so that they understand the self-sacrifice of not only me, but those who didn't come back. What exactly sparks your PTSD today? It can be a smell. One of the ironies of life is the buses that we have in Windsor have the same diesel engines that we had in our vehicles. So you've been behind a bus or you've crossed the street when a bus starts off and that black smoke comes out and it takes me right back to Afghanistan. Uh, a Canadian fighting vehicle was hit on the 4th of July, hit an IED and we recovered the vehicle. It was blown in half. So 4th of July, living where we live, the Americans are celebrating Independence Day and I can hear the explosions in the distance. And sometimes you can look and see the, the pops and the color. That's what war looks like. That's what it sounds like. I have no problem with fireworks. I just, it's one of the ironies of my existence that I live so close to the United States that the 4th of July will always be an explosion-laden day. There are places and sights and sounds and dates that get that tape going in my head again. It is something that I'm very comfortable talking about. It is something that I want people to know and understand. And here's the reason why. Even the military, for a while, when folks would come back, and people would say, listen, I don't really feel like I belong here. They would medically release them. The army now has learned and policing has learned and public safety organizations have learned that if you take regular folks and you put them into extraordinary circumstances, there shall be a reaction and there shall be a new normal that they come to accept. Now, like I said, even sitting here talking, I'm privileged that I can talk about it. There are some colleagues of mine that would never speak of anything, not because they are afraid, but simply because it is hurtful, private, and deeply emotional for them. And what I would like to make sure that people understand is it is a normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance, and it creates a new normal for folks, and they're able to live completely happy, productive lives there just are times where they may appear to be sad. This podcast is about PTSD, 
Mike Akpata suffers from it. We'll hear more from him and we'll learn about programs that deal with trauma as Better Together continues. My next guest is Senior Constable Bonnie Racine. She was a patrol officer for the LaSalle Police Service for 26 years. She is now the Coast Officer and Coordinator for the LaSalle Police Peer Support Program. Welcome, Bonnie. Thanks, Rosalind. Thanks for having me. You've heard Mike Akpata talk about PTSD. How often do you hear this kind of story from other police officers? In my role, it's quite often. Uh, even within our service, we talk regularly, we speak regularly to one another, and we support one another. And that's the role of the, the peer support team. In my day-to-day role currently, I'm the Coast Officer, which stands for Community Outreach and Support Team. Our role is to go out and to meet with people that have had contact with police for the mental health component or an addiction piece to offer them support because sometimes it's difficult for people to navigate through the system and we offer that support to them. Okay, but that is separate from your peer support, correct? correct? So peer support is uh, a group of volunteer uh, officers and members. So it's uh, currently we have nine members that are part of our peer support team. The purpose of the of the peer support team is that these people are keeping and knowing very private, confidential, personal information about experiences, and that if we're not a confidential group, then we may as well not exist. Okay. How do you help fellow officers and first responders when they're in these very traumatic experiences? What do you offer? So first of all, we we suggest to our officers and to our new officers um, especially to to try and find a, uh, a therapist, whether it be a social worker or a, a psychologist, somebody that they're comfortable with, and to have a meeting with them uh, so that psychologist or that therapist becomes familiar with their baseline, what they're normally like uh, on, a, on a regular day. So if there is a traumatic event, and as first responders, we do experience uh, multiple traumatic events um, over careers so that they know what they're like on a good day. And so when they do present and they're maybe having um, difficult times, then how to support them and where they've come from and where they're at. And if there has been a particularly stressful or traumatic event, one of our members will meet with or at least touch base with by phone or by text of those members and offering them support. Or if it's a longstanding or if something is particularly bothering that person, we will connect them with services. Can you think of one particular incident where you had to come in as a peer support help for somebody or a group of people? I mean, there's not a lot of specific events that I can share, uh, but in general, when there are larger events, we will uh, conduct what's called a peer support debrief. Peer support debrief is a specific debrief to discuss how people are feeling and how people are doing and where they're at and if we can support them in any way. In those debriefs, it's a room where there's no rank, there's no supervisors. Uh, we only allow the people in the debrief that have been involved in the event. So those are um, where we talk about how they felt and um, trying to discuss um, to get them back to feeling better. And if that can't happen, 
And sometimes it can't. If it, things are not feeling well, if they aren't sleeping, uh, they aren't eating, they're constantly running through scenarios in their head over and over, and it's disrupting their day-to-day life, um, it's disrupting their work, it's disrupting their family, then that's not time to seek some extra help. When was this program started in LaSalle? So we started um, probably about 13 years ago oh, wow. and didn't do it well. Uh, I'll be honest with that. And now we've been established and uh, have a very firm footing because we know it works and we know it's needed. And uh, we know the the membership is happy with what's happening. And we often will ask people to to join in. So this program in reality is fairly new if it's been developing for quite some time, right? But trauma's been around for a long time. What change led to this type of peer support? Well, sadly, there have been members that that haven't been supported when, within the office, and it was a sort of a old-school sort of mentality where that's part of the job, and you just moved on, and you just went to the next uh, call, and you didn't really think about it, and if you didn't think about it, it wasn't going to bother you. But we know that that's not the case, and uh, through the years, people have gone off with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and we want to prevent that because the best place for us to be is at work and helping the community. Do you encourage people to talk about the trauma as a way of dealing with it? Absolutely. I think that uh, is the best place to start, is to have a conversation about it, uh, to share with with someone that you trust and and someone that you value their opinion and to seek assistance regularly because we are seeing these tragic events more regularly than most people do in their life. And uh, to have a conversation, it certainly can't hurt. Thank you, Bonnie, for joining me today. Senior Constable Bonnie Racine is a peer support coordinator and a coast officer for LaSalle Police. Mike, you've had PTSD for years. What would you like to tell others who may also have it? You are not alone. It is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength when you talk. But the same way that we carry good times in our heads, birth of a child, marriage proposals, anything that's happy, we also carry, unfortunately, the negative things that have happened to us and how you deal with it or how you believe people perceive you is also how you're going to deal with these times that you find yourself in. Mike, how important is it for you to talk about your trauma? For me, it's very important. Uh, I've often believed that a burden that is shared is more easily carried. And like I said, I've seen the friends that keep things bottled in, and I recognize that I'm not suggesting to anyone that my way is the only way. But for me... I find that anytime I get on stage or any place and talk about it and relive those events, the impact on me becomes less and less. I think people who speak about their circumstance, their trauma, their victimization are some of the strongest people I know. They recognize that something untoward has happened. They decide for themselves how they're going to deal with it. And then they very slowly move forward. They will never forget, and it will always be a part of them. They will never be able to erase that day, but they'll be better. Well, thanks for being here, Mike. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
Mike Akpata teaches at St. Clair College and is a town councillor in LaSalle, Ontario. This podcast is about PTSD. We, we use horses that are therapy horses. They all have a very calm demeanor. We'll learn about programs that deal with trauma as Better Together continues. Thanks to the support of generous sponsors for making this podcast possible. You're listening to Better Together with a Life Worth Living. I'm Rosalind Peck. This podcast is about post-traumatic stress disorder and how people deal with it. My next guest works for the Windsor-Essex Therapeutic Writing Association. John Casey is the health and safety officer and a facilitator for a program for first responders who have developed PTSD. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Glad you can be here. What's this program called? This program is called EACPT, which stands for Equine Assisted Cognitive Processing Therapy. How did you get involved in the program? Years ago, WETRA, the Windsor-Essex Therapeutic Riding Association, they had a pilot project that was in the works. Um, and I was actually a member because prior to this, I was an emergency dispatcher and I actually was diagnosed with PTSD. And uh, when I um, was going through my recovery journey, I was uh, part of the programming there. And that's how I, uh, I started my, uh, my journey and uh, ended up as their uh, prevention officer at Tuatra. Uh, Tell me about the program. How does it work? Well, EACPT uh, uses CPT, which stands for Cognitive Processing Therapy, which has been a um, proven therapy to help reduce signs and symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and especially in the first responder community. Well, just tell me about your experience. I mean, you went through the program when it was still in the early stages. So tell me what yeah. what it was like for you when you went through it. Yeah, so the original program, it was sponsored actually by the Ministry of Labor. Um, it wasn't the same curriculum that we're delivering now. What we've done with the pilot project, we've pretty much dissected it and uh, we've tried to perfect it. So the original program, I believe, was eight to nine weeks, and now we've uh, we've grown that into a fourteen session program. We use a variety of different exercises, obstacle courses, a lot of self reflection on how the individual sees themselves, how trauma has affected them, and how thought processes are after their traumatic experience. And the horses. Who doesn't love a horse, right? Exactly. So we have a great herd of horses right now at the farm. We, we use horses that are therapy horses. They all have a very calm demeanor, um, which is very important. Um, the horses there really feed off of an individual's energy. For an example, if you come into the barn and you are very anxious or very, um, you know, you're yelling and screaming, they're going to be on alert. They are a prey animal, and they are on alert because they really have no forms of protecting themselves other than running. Like humans, if they experience a traumatic experience, they're always going to be on high alert. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes in and they're anxious, um, do the horses help calm them down, or do they try to match their mood to how the horse is behaving? What we do, we have several exercises throughout the whole program. So some of them will be, for an example, we might have an obstacle course. Now, when I say obstacle course, I'm not talking about the horses jumping over water or running a marathon with the individual on their back. 
Um, it's important to note that our program, it's a, it's a ground program, which means there's no um, mounted exercises. As they go through these different um, obstacles, we try to relate the traumatic experience they have with the horse's, um, their emotions as well. So that horse might be very hesitant to go walk over that tarp because that's not something that they're used to. So what exercises do we use to calm the horse down? We show that to the individual, and that may help them bring their emotions down as well. And what would those um, exercises look like? Um, well, what we do, we, we set up in the arena. So for the obstacle course, we set it up on one side of the arena. They'll bring the horse in. That obstacle course will change. Let's say we do it uh, on week two and week four, because in life, as we know, there's always things thrown at us, right? So they may think they're going into a certain situation where um, they'll, they'll remember, oh yeah, that's what the, the obstacle course was. But we will change it purposely so they, they can adapt. The individual and their horse, they may walk over poles. They may walk around barrels. They may have to do a, a certain, um, let's say, figure eight in the arena. But each of those are um, out of the ordinary for the horse to participate in. And for the person as well, I And assume. for the person, absolutely, absolutely. It's a learning experience for both the horse, each session, and the participant. The horse is a tool. We use the horse's reactions and we relate those to the, the participants' reactions. If a horse shows that they are anxious, they may start to pin their ears. How long does it take before people in the program show any results? Um, it's, it's situational. Um, what Someone may start showing um, improvement within the first few weeks. Somebody may um, have improvement not till the end of the program. All of our results are, are documented and measured um, and then forwarded on to our overseeing clinician. So everything is gauged accordingly. Um, the nice thing about uh, the program is prior to um, entry, we have a, um, a, a long entry process, many questions. So the program itself can be tailored to the individual. So you have PTSD. How did you get PTSD? Well, prior to my employment at uh, Wetra, um, I was employed here in Windsor-Essex. I was a 911 dispatcher and call taker. I was on the ambulance side of things. So I answered the 911 calls, uh, dispatched the ambulances. And as you are aware, I'm sure that usually when you call 911 and ask for help, it's not usually a good day. Um, I had a, uh, what I like to call an index event or a, or a traumatic event um, initially, um, shortly after I started in uh, 2006. Back then, mental health, and especially in the first responder community, it wasn't as talked about it as it is today. Even in the last uh, so many years, it's, um, it's improved quite a bit. So after that event, um, things were just different. And my... Um, my work ethic was different, my family life was different, and myself just as a person was different. I had initially um, reached out to um, some individuals that were higher up than me, and I said, you know, something's just not right. And, you know, I can remember the one individual just kind of putting his hand on my shoulder and saying, you know what, before you know it, it'll just be like any other call. Well, it never was. So I carried that with me for a long time. And I can honestly say for close to 10 years, I thought about that specific call. 
all those um, feelings, all those symptoms, all the anxiety, all the um, those emotions just got worse. So my wife and I, we went to a, uh, a speaker that uh, Essex Windsor EMS had hosted. Um, and it was an individual speaking. He was a, a police officer on, uh, on his journey with uh, PTSD. And I can remember specifically saying to my wife on the way home, you know, oh, did any of that sound familiar? And she just broke down. So that was my initial kind of cue to say, okay, let's let's get this together. So shortly after that, I made a, an appointment with my uh, with my family doctor and pretty much said, you know, I want my life back. This is what's going on, and we we tackled it. And it was then decided that it was a, um, a work restriction that I couldn't return to that position. So I went back to school um, over time and uh, got some further education, and that's how I uh, I ended up to where I'm at today. Well, we're glad you did. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And it is very, uh, doing things like this, being involved in the EACPT program, it's very therapeutic, helping others. Um, when you're a first responder, it's in your blood to, you want to help people. When certain things happen, like, you know, you get uh, an occupational stress injury, such as PTSD, it's a hard pill to swallow, it really is. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything you'd like to say to anybody that's got PTSD? You know, it's a long road, but we have this program here. We can't offer to guarantee that you'll be completely symptom-free when you're done our program. But what we can guarantee is that there's hope. Thanks for coming in today, John. No problem. And thank you for uh, keeping the conversation going and uh, bringing awareness to the community. You're very welcome. John Casey is the Health and Safety Officer for Windsor-Essex Therapeutic Writing Association and a facilitator for the Equine Assisted Cognitive Processing Therapy Program. As we've heard in this podcast, trauma can last much longer than the event itself. The resulting post-traumatic stress disorder can have a lasting impact. Attitudes have changed about PTSD. People don't have to be silent about this situation anymore. Thank you for listening. I'm Rosalind Peck. Know who you are, where you will go, and choose a life worth living. This episode is made possible by the support of generous sponsors. <laughs>